I yeah. think that's something that I can say with certainty. So, so for the audience that doesn't know, I'm an architect and I actually work on temples. And so I can say with certainty that portable temples are not going to be announced at this conference. <laughs> Dang it. Dang. Yeah, that was such a buildup. Hello and welcome to Bless the Refreshments. It's our second episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, in this episode, in preparations for Easter, we're talking Easter eggs in the Doctrine and Covenants. So we're pretty liberal with our interpretations as to what we define as an Easter egg. Basically, it's something personal, an insight that we found that was interesting in the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you disagree with that definition, deal with it or start your own podcast. Also, I guess I should say that while we talk a lot about the church and some of its policies and doctrine, we need to mention that we do not speak on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're not endorsed by the church. We speak on behalf of us. And that's it. And we'd love for you to be a part of the conversation as well. So feel free to email us with questions or comments at blesstherefreshments123 at gmail.com and comment on our posts on Instagram and at Twitter at blesstherefreshments. Enjoy the episode. I think we're I think we're well on our way. Are we gonna do um, Easter eggs tonight? Is that what we wanted to focus on? But I think we probably should because that because we already teased it in last episode. Unless we that'd, just want to lop off that. Be part, our, but. That'd be our shtick, is that we tease an episode and we're like, actually, nope, sorry. <laughs> no. You have no we're idea what we're doing. actual teases. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I like it. All right. Well, friends, let's, let's talk about Easter eggs in the Doctrine and Covenants. Easter's coming up. Uh, and like I said, I think that this will be, I'm going to contribute to the very least of these um these easter eggs but i will say that i think the doctrine and covenants is really interesting because about 10 years ago janina and i were reading it and i thought holy cow if you don't have a solid testimony of joseph smith that joseph smith is a prophet and he's really receiving revelation on behalf of jesus christ to lead and guide his people it is a record about how joseph smith is using his his uh, position to manipulate people and i thought ooh. Am I glad that I have a testimony of at least that? I had not thought of it from that point of view before. Yeah, but I don't think I. You know, have it's either. interesting. Like in the when we were in the mission, you know, the interesting thing was is that uh, now this may not have been a thing when you guys were a missionary, but when I was a missionary, um, we had this, and I'm blanking on the term for it. Uh, it was a method that you used to build uh, to build trust with the people that you were teaching. And they, they had a term for it. I'm, I'm blanking on it. The commitment really, pattern? Commitment pattern. Yeah, yeah, commitment pattern. So you guys you guys had that still when you went to the MTC. So they my were teacher that said... Out. They were saying, don't use the commitment pattern. But all the teachers were like, you have to use the commitment pattern because it's the best. And I said, I don't really know or care what it is. So just teach me. But my teacher said something pretty interesting about that. He's like, you know, it would rightly be called the manipulation pattern if you're not using the spirit. And so it's interesting how a method isn't necessarily right or wrong. It's the spirit that you are bringing with you and the purpose that you have that matter. Oh, for sure. It's all about intention. And I think that it, it, we need to be able to, like, it would be really helpful, obviously, to know Joseph Smith personally, because, you know, lots of people said that he was so kind and so full of love. When, you know, critics now look at through a lens of what is he doing and don't know him. And they're, you know, coming up with that he's a monster and all this other crazy stuff. So, like, uh, yeah, I totally think that it would be very helpful if we actually knew Joseph Smith and the tone in which it is coming from would be really helpful, too. But the best way to do that is to study the Doctrine and Covenants. That's true. Uh, the interesting thing about the Doctrine and Covenants, this isn't really an Easter egg, but the thing that I think is really interesting about it is that it's the most personal of all of the scriptures to me because it addresses someone individually so much. So you have all these people by name being addressed and you could swap out their name for yours and really apply it to yourself in a very literal sense, depending on your situation, depending on uh, what you're trying to, uh, to glean from the scriptures. Um, so I really like that about the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the most personal. It's the most, you really 
get the as close as we can get to the personality and you know the conversational nature of God. I really think the Doctrine and Covenants is the closest thing we have in written word to something like that. That that's really interesting uh, point of view because it's the opposite for me. Uh, well, not really. It's maybe not the opposite's a bad word for it, but like, I feel like I, I have a strong testimony of the scriptures. I feel like I have an absolute testimony of the scriptures. One of the few things that I can say that I know the scriptures are the word of, are the word of God, but I've never had a personal relationship with the doctrine and covenants. Um, but what you, I think what you just said would be a good exercise as I continue to read it is to swap myself out for the people named in the heading. So I, I like the doctrine and covenants because I feel it's like the most modern of scripture. Uh, the people that he's t- speaking to, we like, they're not like, you know, Nephi where it's like, uh, you know, like there's no actual proof that he ever existed with the exception of the book of Mormon. But I like the, I like the doctrine and covenants, particularly this time of, as I've been reading it is that I, we have actual people and I can read more about those people. Like, again, like we've been talking about earlier, like the, the Whitmer brothers, uh, you know, like I know their the, the revelations in the late teens, like the teen sections, I think it's 15 through 17 or something like that. They have the same revelations and I can go and with saints go and read what happens to them. Uh, and I think, I think that that's really interesting. I know what's kind of going on in their lives to, to see why those revelations are relevant to them. I thought that's been really interesting too. Oh, for sure. And also, you know, when we're talking about revelations, it's, it's really interesting to see how the revelations came about. Um, Because one of the things about the early days of the church that I really find fascinating is that, and it even says this, I think, in one of the chapter headings, um, but you can see it as you read in church history, you you can see it over and over again, is that there was a lot of anxiety amongst the saints to, they wanted to receive revelations for everything because they have a prophet. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a two-edged sword though. I mean, to desire to receive the word of the Lord from the prophets, a great thing, right? But people were not only wanting to receive revelations that were pertinent to the church, they wanted to receive revelations for themselves. And so it was interesting, Joseph Smith ended up kind of being a tutorial to the, the people in the church of how that they could receive revelations ultimately. Because if you if you look at the chapter headings, one of the interesting things is in the early sections, you'll see the prophet had this question and he inquired of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim and received the following revelation, right? You don't have that later in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, he doesn't need the Urim and Thummim, right? Okay. Um, yeah. And so he's, le- he's learning how to receive revelations without the use of a medium. And I think as as he's doing that the, the church is also kind of seeing that happen there's actually even a story that i that i read one time from someone's journal at that time so when joseph was doing the new translation of the bible it's really interesting he was looking you know through all of his scraps of paper for this one thing that he did and he couldn't find it and they 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 wasted a lot of time looking for it and he had some some place he had to be so he didn't have time to find it so once he concedes that he can't find it. He sits back in the chair and with the man that he was with says, okay, I want you to dictate exactly what I say. And the third party guy who's writing the story down talks about how his countenance just changed, how he, he, he could see God kind of speaking through him. And he gave this revelation on the spot. And it was just through his mind or, you know, through his spirit or however you want to describe it. But it's really, it's really interesting once someone gains that knowledge of how to receive revelation and it's needed, that becomes a skill that we can all have and we all should have in this church. And Joseph was the one who showed us how to do that in the Doctrine and Covenants, at least for me. That would be really cool. See, like witnessing that, that would bring a new light to the Doctrine and Covenants for me. If I could have, you know, if I could have that similar experience, I, that's really cool. Well, I think when you were saying that, Tyson, I there were memories that, that come back to me when, whether it's in church or not, whether you're just having a spiritual conversation with somebody else, there are times where you can feel the room change when you go from just speaking to somebody 
to now the spirit is speaking, you know, whether it's in a class or whether it's in a, a church, you know, a sacrament meeting or just, just having a gospel conversation. I feel like you can feel the room change. It feels like that's would be similar to the experience then. You know, what's interesting about that Burgess. Do you think everyone in that room has to have that same experience no. or do you think it, it depends I, a little bit? I think, I think it's extremely personal. I was going to say the times that those those experiences happen to me, it's generally it generally doesn't happen to everyone else. Like it's generally an internal thing that I've had. Again, I've had it in a religion class once. I had it in a sacrament meeting when I was in Japan. It's been when I've been reading my scripture, but and I know that other people are not having that same experience because it is almost like a conversation in my head with with myself. But I kind of know that it's that it's more than that, you know, and there's no way anyone else could be having that same experience in my, in, as me. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think that you, that's the thing that's so amazing about the spirit is that it can give a personal experience to everyone that's different. And it, it could potentially even be at the same time, not necessarily that it is at the same time, but you can be having an experience. People could potentially be sharing that experience with you, but you don't know. Right. I remember w- my first calling after my mission, I was executive secretary of the Singles Ward. And it's the first time I'd ever been in the room when callings were made. And we were trying to choose a Relief Society president. And there was a very obvious choice, you know, very personable, very somebody that knew everybody. And then there was a, a recent convert that ha- that kept coming up. And every time her name was brought up, there the room felt like it changed. And I didn't realize until the bishop said so that... He said, well, it feels like it needs to be the recent convert. And I was amazed that to think that, okay, so everybody else is feeling this at the same, at the same time. And huh. it was one of those, it was really weird. I'll never forget that experience, you know, gave me kind of a testimony of callings. That was an experience I'll remember that all having the same experience at the same time, it felt like. And that doesn't happen but very it's much. Also- yeah, for sure. But it's also, you know, probably a testimony of unity. Yeah. Right? Or, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I think that's a really good point. Because that's what, that's one of the gifts of the spirit is to unify, you know, the, to unify people in the gospel. And it's, it's interesting too, because that's one of the other things I was going to, I was going to bring up. Um, this is actually more just of a, a or, an organizational Easter egg maybe, but I think sometimes we take for granted the, the organization that we have in the church now and that that didn't always exist, right? For sure. Even though, you know, with, with any large organization, there's its downside, right? I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> right. Because well, they, they had to figure it, it out. But it's interesting. So what, were, what was the very first organization of, uh, in the church? Do you guys know? It was the day the church was organized. There was two people called to, to two different positions. Patriarch? Was not yet. Okay. No, I have no idea. Yeah. So, so the, the first two positions... Section 20? I don't... I think it's before 20, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Can we just... Can, re, can we just wait and read all of 20? Just to make sure yeah, it's not right. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were, were called as the first and second elders of the church. Okay. You guys, you guys remember that? Yeah. So, so they were the first and second elders of the church. It later kind of became known if you were the first elder of the church as also being the president of the church. And the second elder of the church was um, the assistant to the president of the church or the associate president of the church. So this is where a lot of the succession problems happened because Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated and then Hiram Smith was called as his replacement. And actually a really, really cool story behind that. Right. But you've also, in addition to that, later on, you get the 12 apostles. You've got the first presidency. You've also got the three and the eight witnesses that kind of hold a special place in the church, even though I don't know that it was a specific calling, but they were, giving, they were given deference because of that experience. And it's a really interesting because a lot of the perception in the church at that time was respect was given to people who shared these revelatory experiences with Joseph Smith. So for instance, Oliver Cowdery translated a good chunk of the Book of Mormon. So did Martin Harris. Sidney Rigdon did some translating, but he was also a member of the First Presidency. And but then you've also got the Twelve Apostles with Thomas Marsh, Brigham Young, and you know, many you know, Parley P. Pratt, you know, so many others. 
um, and you've all got this kind of divided authority, but no handbook that tells you this is how you do the you know the succession and stuff like that. And when Hiram and Joseph both died at the same time, it's like, well, where does the authority in the church lie? Sure. Well, Sidney Rigdon was still a member of the first presidency. He's like, well, I'm a member of the first presidency. I should take over. And and there was others too, but the spirit of unity that Burgess was talking about rested on the on the twelve with Brigham in its head. And, and there was a very unifying experience. You even talk about Lucy Mack Smith getting up as the saints were leaving and talking about how, how Brigham was the, was the person that was supposed to lead the saints. And she was a very, you know, she was very much respected and admired among the, uh, among the saints at that time as well. She was, uh, she was a very powerful, you know, special person in the church in those early days. And so I think that spirit of unity is really important. And that's one of the things that we learn organizationally that can come about that can contribute to unity, but it can also, if you're not careful with it, it can contribute to disunity or, or whatever the opposite of that is. And so it's, I think it's, I think it's a good lesson on a lot of different levels. I'm curious what, if that rings true with you guys as well. I just want to say it is section 20. Oh my God. <laughs> Verse two and three. <laughs> But I'm just kidding. But yeah, like I, I totally agree. Again, I, I think that I kind of liken, you know, the first pass off of of the prophethood, kind of like you know George Washington, like when his second term was up, like what's going to happen? Like George Washington could have done, you know, could have made the the presidency like a, a lifelong thing. But the, the point is, is that no one knew what they were doing. You know, no one really knew what was exactly was supposed to happen, but, you know, they all kind of made the right decision, at least in terms of the presidency. And George Washington, you know, gave up the presidency after two terms, uh, thus establishing kind of that that thing. But, like, I, I understand why, like, I totally agree that we take for granted the, the organization of the church, that we know after President Nelson dies, we know it's not going to be a surprise who's going to be the next prophet. When I was young, when Howard W. Hunter died, that was like really the first one that I remember. No, Ezra Taft Benson. And I was like, Ooh, who's going to be the prophet? Like anyone could be the prophet. And then like my, like my primary teachers, I don't think knew at the time. They're like, yeah, anyone could be the prophet. I was like, Oh, that's so cool. And then like, I got, then I got older and I learned that it was, you know, succession. I was like, Oh, that's kind of boring. But it's also nice that we don't have campaigning and backbiting and profit debates. Who would be the best profit? We know what's going to happen, which is awesome. Well, yeah. Ezra Taft Benson's actually a really, a really good example of an, of another issue that we have is that what happens when the prophet is, you know, has failing health or incapacitated yeah. or something like that, because for a long time, I mean, Ezra Taft Benson had a lot of problems health wise towards the end, uh-huh. and he, he you didn't see him in conference for a long time. And uh, it was uh, President Hinckley and President Monson that would share those responsibilities in his absence. And so you can see also how the first presidency can compensate for you know uh, struggles of a single person, uh, you know, in a case that you know someone isn't able to perform their functions for whatever reason. So it's it, it, it's got a lot of checks and balances and a lot of ways to compensate for varying circumstances. I, I think it's something that we really enjoy. But at the time, you know, in those early days of the church, you can say it served a purpose to not have that clear cut because it did act as a, as a sieve, right? Um, you know, it really took the people listening to the spirit to know who to follow. And some of the people that were trying to lead the church were not the most, you know, faithful, let's say. Sure. And so it, it, it acted as a way to kind of keep the faithful together, which I think is interesting. That's good stuff. Can I just ask, as, as much as I think that the unity in the church is important, what do you guys think about unity just within our own families? In what way? What do you, what do you mean? Well, I mean, the thing is, is the church can affect us, right? I mean, like having, having disunity in the church has this thing, but we know we're a home-centered church now, right? Right. And so to me, I think it's interesting, like, how do we really have unity within our marriages and within our family units now that we're kind of more emphasized as the core of the church? Because I think that if I was to be so bold, I think we all have really good spouses and I think we all have great kids and I'm sure we all have our struggles, but I think that having that conversation of like how we 
foster unity within our own households. I think that would be an interesting conversation to have because I don't know that I talk to you guys about that very much. I just kind of assume that you all are, are killing it all the time. <laughs> but uh, but what do you, what do you guys do? You guys have do you guys feel those spiritual promptings to kind of um, have unity in your marriage and in when you're trying to deal with your family and your kids and things like that? One one hundred percent. It and, but it's weird. It's the family is kind of a place where you can vent your frustrations that's where everything comes out and you're you're at your best and your ugliest with your family right you know obviously it all comes down to communication communicating what you want what you want out of something what you think the best path might be and then listening to your spouse what they say and just being very humble while you're listening just really listen not just wait for your turn to talk but just you know really listen and i i think it's and then what you you and your spouse talk about behind closed doors, you come out. And no matter who's who was, no matter what views you sh- you you each individually had, you come out, and then you you know you present something as a unified couple to the kids. You know if you're if you are having a fight, it doesn't go beyond the house. It stays. You know you don't go and and talk to your parents or any or anybody else about it. It's it just stays. If you know between the between you as a couple, and then when when kids, I I think there's a it's kind of a fine line when kids bring up opposing views too, right? They they don't like what you're doing. Um, they want to go a different way. I think you have to apply the same thing and really listen to what they're saying, even if they're you know even if they're four and they're just they they I think we have to validate their feelings too. And I just think they're the family needs to be a safe place to voice opposition, but in the end all come out unified. No, I, I totally agree. I, I've been feeling a lot about this with my kids. In fact, just yesterday, I, I've been wanting to give my kids outlets to say, how can we improve as a family? How can we, uh, you know, do you feel safe at home? Do you feel safe at school? You know, and, and yesterday I was talking with my six-year-old James. We were just, we had just come in from playing and we were just actually just laying on the lawn and we were just talking. And I was like, so James, do you feel safe at home? Oh yeah, I feel really safe. If you could make things one thing different about home, what would it be? You know, and I don't his his answers weren't overly like revolutionary, but it was I, I don't know, I want my kids to be able to have ownership over what our family is, how it functions, so that way it's not just, you know, you do what mom and dad say, but that way they can think of innovative ideas to to bring to the table. So that way, when they grow up to have their own families and, you know, be when they're gainfully employed, you know, they'll have ideas. They can not only spot out problems, but they can also come up with solutions on how to f- how things can run better. And and that's something that I that I was never given as a as a teenager, I think, or as a, even as a definitely not as a kid, because I would have ran my run my family into the ground because I was a crazy little kid. I don't know. I think the idea of family councils is huge because we can bring up, hey, this is what this is a problem that we need to solve. How do we do this? It will not only shows that you know mom and dad don't have all the answers, but like, but then again, they also have ownership in how our family runs, and and that's something that I've really liked. I'm not very good at it quite yet because one, my kids are really little, uh, and two, a lot of times when we're speaking to each other in improvement times, it's kind of heated. At least I want to have that as a routine that, like I said, our kids have a voice in how our family runs. I like that. And I, you know, it's interesting trying to separate yourself from the moment to try and implement those, all those good ideas. Cause I think when we're all like calm and thinking clearly and have sleep and, and those types of things, we think, oh yeah, that's the best way to do it. But then you get in the moment and you're so frustrated that you, you have a hard time actually following through on, on the good intentions that you have. Yeah, for sure. And I do that a lot because my daughter's exactly like me and she's every bit as contrary as I am. And she's every bit as stubborn as I am. <laughs> and like having to deal with yourself is just a frustrating experience. And it's, it's really difficult to master. I love Eve. She's the best, <laughs> but she's also, you know, a, 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 a beautiful person and already smarter than I am. And, you know, at six years old or whatever. And so it's, and so it's, you don't have to be perfect is, is kind of what I've found. 
you know, like kind of like what Burgess was saying, they see you when you're not at your best and they, they love you anyway. Now we're, we're talking about like levels of not your best, right? We're not talking about like abusive levels or something like that, right. but we are talking yeah. like we don't, Wait, we're yeah, not talking we, about know, that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I felt like I had to make that clarification. I don't know why we are. It's the, mi- it's the microphone. Fathers. I don't <laughs> let's make that clear. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, but I, I get to that point sometimes. Why won't you just listen to me? <laughs> yeah. And she's like, why would I listen to you? <laughs> so it's, it, you know, it can, it can get bad sometimes, but I think always trying and re, um, reinforcing that those thoughts, uh, on yourself in solitary moments, I think helps. And then just making consistent efforts to try and put those, you know, implement those in, when the situation arises, you know, you're just going to get better. And it's hard to see yourself getting better, right? Because you're seeing yourself in real time. You probably don't think you've changed since you were 13 years old, but someone from the outside can't even recognize you. And so it's, it's something that I think that we just have to have faith that we are getting better, you know? And I think, you know, the communication, for instance, between me and Springer was really rocky at the first because I communicate with her in a way that was totally foreign. And she was, you know, she had other challenges as well, you know, in her house growing up and self-esteem issues and, and those types of things. But over time, you know, she has gained a lot of confidence because I keep asking her to speak her mind and to, you know, say things and not worry about if it contradicts something I'm saying, because I don't, it's never something I cared about. You know, I, I want her to, to voice an opinion because that gives me information and I can then respond to that. I can't, I can't respond to silence. It's, it's hard for me. And so, you know, through that, we've been able to do things. And now we do have that unity that, you know, especially with working with our, uh, you know, our child, I just think it's a process that we all have to go through. And, but I think it's, it's one that's worthwhile and we'll get better over time. Yeah. And uh, I was, I'd like to get to more okay. Easter eggs, but I was like, I think one thing for me that I'm trying to do better to increase unity in my family is admitting when I'm wrong to my kids. Right. That's, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's huge. Uh, and that's something, again, my dad is the, the best uh, and, and my mom is too, but I don't remember that happening ever. And a lot of the times, you know, when I apologize, I'm trying not to make it like, I'm sorry, James, but when you did this, this is why I did that. Right. Right. But being like, look, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said this. It doesn't matter in what is going on. I should treat you more respectfully. I'm really, really sorry. And that was my mistake. I'm going to try to do better, you know, to have real genuine apologies and admonitions of, or admissions of wrong, I think is, is something that will go to, to increase unity in my house. At least that's what I'm, I'm hoping it'll pay off to be. No, uh, that's part of the process that uh, that Tyson was talking about. It's that that's that's the process. We we're all open with each other, saying, "Hey, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm gonna make. I made a mistake. I'm gonna make more. I'm sorry. I'm gonna try to try to do better." I like it. That that was that was a good uh, that was a good question there, Tyson. So, Tyson, do you want to uh, uh, do you want to? Or, or guys, Tyson shared an organizational Easter egg. Burgess, do you want to go? Uh, yeah. share us, share with us uh, an Easter egg you found in the Doctrine and Covenants. Sure. Can, well, first, can we, can we have a definition of an Easter egg? It's an ovalish shaped <laughs> object. That's Pastel colored and, ovalish. Yeah. <laughs> it has a surprise something that's edible inside. Okay. I was so just, my first I was just edible thinking, yeah, scripture was. <laughs> I was just saying, I was just thinking something that would, I don't know, just an interesting nugget of information that you thought was interesting. Doesn't matter right. its complexity or whatever. Yeah, my just just to, just to throw this out there when I when I threw out the term Easter egg because you know whether it was good or bad I'll just throw it out there this one was my idea to me an Easter egg is something that you wouldn't normally find so in, in scripturally to me it's like you read something and you had an insight about that that you hadn't thought about before you think might you know kind of go under the radar or something like that and it really is pretty open ended I thought. I, I agree. I think it's very open-ended. Uh, thinking in cinematically, there's a famous Godfather Easter egg is whenever you see oranges, that person's going to die. Someone's going to die. So my Easter egg is actually in the Word of Wisdom. So Doctrine and Covenants section 89. If anybody knows anything about the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they know they don't smoke or drink. 
so this is where the Doctrine and Covenants 89 is where these rules come from. It's our, the law of health. And I actually have a very personal relationship with Section 89. I actually love the Word of Wisdom, even if um, I don't follow it. I don't smoke or drink, but anyway. What I, and I, had a, I, I did one of my episode ideas. Confess your sins right now, Burgess, <laughs> right, to <yeah>. everyone, <laughs> to the, all of the internet right now. Right. Verses 12 and 13 say, Yea, flesh also of beasts and of the fowls of the air, I, the Lord, have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. And here's the important part. And it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine. So we need to be vegetarians. Uh so I've got, I'm going to throw a wrinkle into this, Burgess. Oh, are you going to, because you're going to push back? I've, got a, I, I've heard I've, that interpretation I've got, many times though. Oh, like, have you? I've yeah. got a, okay. I've got a vegetarian wife and right. so do you actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I, so here's the thing. I'm, I'm a word guy. So I, I look at, I look at the words pretty carefully, especially in the scriptures, mm-hmm. but it says the flesh also of beasts. So what qualifies as a beast? Does a fish qualify as a beast? Well, okay. So that's Ooh. been, th- that is a great question. Pescatarians. Amy, my, Amy, my, like, so my wife and I have gone back and forth on that. Is, does fish count? And it's interesting because, so I grew up Catholic, and during Lent, you don't eat meat on Fridays. But you can have fish. They have fish, uh, fish fries at the church every Friday. So that is a very interesting point. Because I agree that we do, I mean, we should, I guess, it, you know, it's interesting. What are the, what does this say, if anything, about the, um, the hierarchy of, of animals on the planet? So right. is, is, yeah. a, is a chicken a beast? Right. As, as an example. I don't know the answer to that question. I would say a cow is a beast. I yeah. mean, that's that, it kind of, I don't know if it's just the size or whatever it is, but I, I think there is a delineation of that. Cause if you look too at, you know, the, uh, the disciples in the new Testament times, just as an example, they were all fishermen and fish was like one of the main staples of their diet. Also, what does sparingly mean? You know, there's a lot of, right. uh, there's a lot of things. Now I will, I will be one to say that I think we do. I had a, I had a, a prompting, you know, some time ago that I was just thinking someone, I was reading a blog someplace and they, they said something, I would say maybe a little flippant, but they, they talked about the hems in the hem book and the hems that, you know, maybe might go away or the ones that they might add or something like that. But there's one of the hems that talks about, you know, eating very little meat or something like that. And she said something flippant like, <laughs> yeah, no one in the church believes in that anymore. <laughs> it's in our lovely Deseret. It is. Oh, yeah. It is a yeah, song. Yeah, that's what it, it is. <laughs> it is a song. It's yeah. a good one. So, and she was essentially saying that one can go away because no one believes in that anymore. <laughs> Well, and to me, that's, that's the, this is the interesting thing about the doctrine and covenants, because I don't believe it's an eternal law. I think it's a law that, uh, that the church leaders have us follow because it's a distinguishing characteristic of members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that they don't smoke tobacco. They don't smoke weed. They don't, you know, they, they don't drink. They don't drink coffee. You don't smoke weed. That is true. That is true. Well, in ge- like in generally speaking, that is true, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. But I also don't think like because when I was growing up, I was like, "Wow, Jesus drank wine," and like all my primary teachers were like, "No, that actually means grape juice. That's not true." Yeah, it wine means wine, wine, wine. No, it means wine. Yeah, Moses sure. got drunk. The Nephites got drunk. You know, the Nephites got the Lamanites drunk so they could escape. I don't believe that a bar that everyone has to clear to, you know, whatever that means, you know, to, to gain celestial glory, uh, or, you know, get into heaven in finger quotes. Right. I don't think that the, that the, that the word of wisdom is going to be a standard. I think it will likely be a standard for us, but, uh, I don't think in its eternal law. I, so I th- again, th- this one, so if, if, if we pick and choose, I don't know if it's necessarily that big of a deal. I could be wrong and likely could very could be wrong. Like I said, I, I don't speak on behalf of the church. This is one of the things that I believe if, if I don't see the word of wisdom come up in the celestial kingdom, not going to bother me. I think I disagree, but only to an you extent, tell me why. because, because I, I think there's, there's, 
if you take it too literal, then you're getting into like law of Moses territory. Sure. And Absolutely. so I, I, I think there is a lot of intention that, that goes into it. There's a lot, it, it's not, it's not black and white. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like we treat it kind of now, like right. you drink and smoke. That's bad. Use your temper recommend. Right. right exactly. exactly. That's black and white. Right. Yep. In the eternities, I, I, there's going to be a lot more gray area, I think, or wiggle Nuance, room. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. Grace, I guess would be the word for it. There's going to be a lot more grace. Um, however, let, so I'm going to read. So an, another thing about that, how I would define an Easter egg is how it connects to something else. Sure. So the, and where I think it connected a uh, scripture, I think it connects to is a uh, second Nephi chapter 30 verses 12 through 15. And there's lots of variations of this idea. Sorry, what chapter? It's, uh, it's second Nephi chapter 30 verses 12 okay. through 15. And then shall the wolf dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed their young one shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. The weaned child shall put his hand on the conchatrice's den. They shall not, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's kind of everybody living in harmony, right? Yeah, sure. And we will live in harmony with, with the beasts. We're going to be vegetarians because we're not going to eat them. They're, the lion turned into vegetarian. But I, I think that there is an eternal truth. I think there are eternal truths in the word of wisdom. I think it, I think it sure. connects a lot more to our spirits. I think... We, I think we focus too much on the parts that don't matter. I've seen so many things about how serious we take, you know, serious we take not drinking coffee, which yeah. it, it's, it doesn't matter. Those kind of things, as serious as we make those things are, are similar to the, how many steps you walk on the Sabbath. It's, it's the intention. It's the respect we have uh, for our body. It's, it's wanting sure. to do better. And I've, I've, and I've had a very clear spirit prompting that if I followed the word of wisdom better, I would be better creatively. I'm a filmmaker. I would, I, my creativity would be much better if I did this. And I, I just think it, it connects more. I think, I think it does connect absolutely eternally. I just, it's not just, it's just not as black and white as we treat it a lot of the time. I think that's probably a more eloquent way of what I'm, of what I'm trying to say, of of what, I guess is the spirit of what I'm trying to say. You know, like, I don't think that again, that the standard of no coffee, no tea, no cigarettes, no alcohol is going to be, is going to exist when we're judged upon the things that, that we, that we are, that we're judged upon. Right. Right. But I do, oh, I totally agree that temperance, taking care of your body is something that is an eternal principle. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, that, that's a, probably a better way of what, a more eloquent way of what I was saying as well. You know, it's uh, interest. another, maybe even a higher level we could go at to talk about something like this is one of my old Institute teachers, the, the, the words he used to describe these things are what are principles versus practices of the church. Oh, sure. Yes. So, yeah. so the interesting thing about word of wisdom and, you know, the, I know I'll, I'll get some disagreement about this, but the word of wisdom to me falls squarely in the practice category. Like this is a practice of the church that happens now. You know, you look, there's a lot of things that we could call practices in the church that may go away someday. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people living the law of Moses that thought that that was, they were going to be offering animal sacrifices all the way and, you know, until the end of the world or whatever. Um, but those things went away. They were practices. They were preparatory to something else. And it almost always is, you know, that Lord's always training us, right? And so, you know, principles would be defined as eternal. Practices are designed for the people, right? That's, that's how the Lord teaches us, trains us, brings us along. It's too, it's not about the thing, right? Right. It, if you look in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is another one of the things I think is great about the Doctrine and Covenants is that you see what people get, what they get reprimanded for in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's really interesting. No one gets reprimanded for being a drunkard. But I remember one instance where he's not humble enough. You know, he, he's, not, he's not sufficiently meek before me. You know, he seeketh to raise himself up. You know, pride is a big one that people get reprimanded for. 
one of them, I can't remember which section it's in, someone gets called out for raising, he raiseth a golden calf to my people. <laughs> you know, essentially he's giving, he's like, you've given my people an idol to worship. You know, there's all these types of things and they really are more core problems than things that you could pick apart as like a behavioral problem, if, if that makes sense. Right. Like there's something wrong with the way that you're thinking and, and the state of your spirit, as opposed to, yeah, you wouldn't you went and bought a bag of groceries on Sunday or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So it's really going to that high level and saying, okay, am I, am I on the spirit, you know, on a, on a high level. And then when I get down to that lower level, those decisions become easier because, you know, the, you know, my spirit, my, my kind of standing with God is, is good and then I, I'm in a better place to make those smaller decisions on a day-to-day level. But I think, I think as we as we really try and center ourselves, we can; those small problems will take care of themselves, and and we'll be able to see them more clearly without obsessing too much about oh, I I pay my tithing to the cent, <laughs> you know, right, or, or or whatever. It's much more basic than we give it credit to be sometimes. I, I think we complicate it way too much. I, yeah, I, I, I agree hundred percent. I think we complicate the practices way too much. Like you said, uh, practices versus principles. I think we complicate the, the practices way too much. Yeah. I think we just focus on the practices way too much, which, oh, which in turn overcomplicates it. I, I think right. it's also because it's the things that we see and the things that we can You're do. Right. It's yeah, less scary it's because they're way more concrete. Whether or not I drink alcohol is binary. I either do or I don't. Well, kind of. But yeah, I think that it, we tend to gravitate to those practices because that's something that we can control. It's something that is not nebulous. It's concrete. And when we see others not dealing with that in the same like simple manner, uh, rather than having it become nuanced and complex, uh, it helps us be like, okay, I'm doing better than this person because of A, B, and C. So for the record, I'm not a vegetarian. Even though neither I, is Tyson. I, I've, he, I've, we've eaten disgusting amounts of chicken wings uh, altogether. Oh, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we, we haven't done it in way too long. Right. That is true. So, yeah, Buffalo Wild Wings and Maverick really need to be our sponsor because those Buffalo Wild Wings and then Joe's Torchiza Burritos, I can't get enough of. But, I think uh, we should do an episode at Wingers. What do you guys think about that? There's a new done. Wingers here in Bountiful, actually. Oh, really? There is, yeah. Yeah. I'm down. The first one didn't make it, but now <laughs> it's now it's there. Oh, you didn't join us for our last all-you-can-eat uh, wings night, did you, Burgess? It was just no. Tyson and me. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can Next, do a live. Maybe right. we do a, a live episode when from... when we do the Word of Wisdom deep dive. We should do it at <laughs> Wingers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we should, and we can only talk with a mouthful of meat. But <laughs> chicken, the mouthful chicken, of chicken, chicken. Got it. Well, good times. Uh, that was a that was a really good one. I liked it, and it's brought on some good conversation. Uh, Tyson, do you want to go next? You haven't gone yet, Johnny. Do you got? You have one you want to share? Um, uh, I can. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think that and mine's more of like a story than it is in a, in a personal experience than it is like. I mean, it's an Easter egg for me because every time I see it, I think about I think about this, and this is Doctor and Covenant section eight. Uh, really, it's section eight and nine, because I remember, uh, so this is a uh, revelation given to Oliver Cowdery. Uh, it's where, you know, the uh, knowledge comes of mysteries of God, and you have to get, you know, these uh, revelation, you know, you get confirmations from revelations through the spirit. You know, it's when uh, Oliver is saying, hey, I want to translate. And uh, he's, you know, it's the, hey, you have to study it out in your mind. Uh, and I remember I've read that a million times, but I remember one specific time it was really pertinent to me was when it was, uh, I think 2009, my wife and I had just said, okay, we've come to a point in our relationship. We've been dating for a, a very long time in uh, church culture standards, particularly at BYU. Uh, she has siblings that got, that met their soon to be, you know, there would be husbands, uh, and were like engaged in like 20 days after meeting them. That's not the way I roll. Uh, so we've been dating for a very long time in those, particularly in those standards. And I, I said, okay, we should probably talk about getting married. She's like, yeah, we probably should. And eventually at the end of these, uh, at the end of this conversation was 
we had a date picked out. We had like, we were really moving because we don't really know. We don't really feel like we should break up, but you know, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards, type type under the guise of that. I was like, okay, well, we should probably pray about this. And I remember going to, uh, going on a road trip that summer to visit my sister in Chicago. We made a stop in, in Nauvoo and it was, we were going to go through the temple and, and I was like, Hey, I should probably, you know, read and pray, you know, as to whether or not I should ask my girlfriend to marry me. And, uh, I remember this was, I was in later in the doctrine of comments, I was like, I want to bring it back to this. And this was, this is just what I was reading. Uh, and I thought, okay, like this is a big one. Like I'm actually going to ask, uh, and, um, here we go. Like I'm going to get this answer in the Navu temple. It's perfect. Uh, and then like, after we got out of the session, my mom was like, so like, what, what did you, what did you think? And I was like, I have no more concrete an answer that it did than last night. Like I still don't know. But I feel like it's going to be okay. And I can relate to Oliver Cowdery in the, you know, you save, you, you did nothing except for you asked me, right? You need to study it out in your mind. And the next like three months were absolutely agonizing in terms of my relationship with, uh, with Janine, who would eventually be my wife, you know, because it was, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't. There were times where I remember like thinking, thinking, I was like, okay, if I feel like this, I remember fasting about it. Uh, in that fall and saying, okay, if I feel like this next week, I'm breaking up with her. I can't do this anymore. This is the worst. And I just spent all summer before as an EFY counselor saying, listen, kids, if you read the scriptures and pray and have faith, you will receive an answer to anything. And here I was with like the biggest decision of my life. And I was so lost on this side of, on this side of it, you know, knowing how everything has worked out so far, at least, you know, that period was my studying it out in your mind. And it wasn't like, okay, let's think about it for an hour. It was an entire, it was months and months and months that I didn't get an answer. And I really never got a serious concrete answer. It was more of an experience that, you know, things are, have, have gone okay. But again, that's an Easter egg to no one except for me. But every time I read those things, I, I put myself back in the Navu, like prepping to go to the Navu temple and then reliving those months of confusion and, and really inner turmoil of whether or not I should get married to someone. So that's mine. Can I share, can I share a, a kind of an opposite, not really opposite, but it was, it, it was actually a really interesting experience also getting married. I kind of, when, when Springer and I got married or decided we were going to get married is actually a fairly natural decision for me. It all felt good. You know, things were going in the right direction. All of our priorities lined up, you know, there was, it, it just felt right. And so I kind of just went along. And then one day I remember thinking to myself, I have not asked if she's the right one for me to marry. And so I felt like I had the opposite problem that Oliver Cowdery had and that I had worked it out in my mind. I'd asked myself all these questions. I'd kind of been paying attention and trying to figure out if things made sense and stuff. But I didn't, I just didn't ask because I don't know if I didn't feel the need to or anything like that. But, and I didn't have some huge spiritual experience when I finally did get down on my knees and ask, but it felt like a necessary step, you know, that even though it was already the way I was heading and it it would have been fine, maybe regardless, I needed to do it. I needed to get down on my knees and ask my heavenly father, is this the right thing to do? And it, and you know, sometimes I I think you might get in the mindset of, well, I don't want to be told no, (laughs) right. Or something like that. I'll just ask a question to finish off. Any predictions for general conference, big announcements, earth shattering changes, because that's definitely what general conference is about is changes yes. in practice, right? <laughs> That's what it's become anyway, <laughs> right? What's he going to say this time? Well, literally, we haven't had a huge monumental shift in practice or policy for a while, yeah? Last one was three years ago when they combined the quorums, at least that I can remember. Am I, yeah. am I off the mark on this one? Unless, unless you count, you don't go to church anymore. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> but <laughs> well, that wasn't a general conference <laughs> announcement. That was a, yeah, that was more of a public safety announcement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, trademark of the church was was changed. Oh yeah, uh, in the proclamation. Recent, the proclamation. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I don't know. I, again, I I like to not guess at things because I don't like being wrong. 
So I don't know. <laughs> so what do we what do we have leading up to church that just happened a few days ago? So it was really interesting. A, a ton of temples just entered into phase two B. Two B. Yeah. Three of them went into right. phase three. Yep. No, so, seven of them. Seven of them did. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm wanting to say like sixty or seventy just went into phase two B. So yeah. they're they're opening up the baptistries. That's gonna happen right after conference. Um from I think Bountiful's opening up on the twelfth, mm-hmm. if I remember right. Um so I, I feel like that couldn't be a coincidence, like timing it like right or you know, timing the announcement right before conference. I feel like we're gonna have some kind of temple uh announcement at conference that's more than just where we have more temples we're going to build. They're going to take up the, uh, the portable temples, like in times <laughs> of the children of Israel. Right. They'll sell them, sell them at Deseret book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can pick out your garments and then your backyard temple. <laughs> I think yeah. that's something that I can say with certainty. So, so for the audience that doesn't know, I'm an architect and I actually work on temples. And so I can say with certainty that portable temples are not going to be announced at this conference. <laughs> Dang it. Dang. Yeah, that Wait, was you such a build up. The Salt Lake that... Temple m- m- like less movable in case of an earthquake is not right. one of those things. Oh, <laughs> See, you guys, I'm already wrong. This is why I don't like pontificating. They're, they're actually right. just lifting the Salt Lake Temple, putting it on wheels so it can go anywhere. You can go on tour with, the, with Motab. That's right. Well, good, good episode, guys. Uh, I uh, I love talking with you guys, and we will. Uh, I guess we'll pick it up soon. Yeah, we'll do it uh, this time next week. Ish. All right. Ish. I like that. Ish. Okay, great. Thanks again for listening. If you like our stuff, consider subscribing and giving us a rating. Like I said earlier, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at blesstherefreshments123 at gmail.com and connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at blessthereshments. Please bless us to get home safely.